You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, Growing Disciple-Making Leaders. This is the last of three sermons from Psalm 103 on experiencing the love of God in leadership. The sermon was given at the Living Leadership Pastoral Refreshment Conference in January 2007. The preacher is Dave Burke from Bethany City Church in Sunderland. The lesson of Psalm 103 is that uh, praise is, is therapeutic. Praise does us good. And uh, when we praise and when we adore God, whether it's alone or together, something happens. However small, however incremental, however gradual, something does happen within our spirits. And we begin to make the progress from the water at the bottom of the well to the daylight at, at the top of the well. Preparing for this week, I've been thinking again and again of an incident that took place quite early in, in my life as a as a, a Christian worker when I left UCCF uh, as staff worker and I was working in fact in the Midlands and um, I just had a blazing row with my closest friend and the issue was uh, the girl that was going to become my wife he just didn't like the cut of her jib thought she was going to pull me down into some unworthy future. It's extremely difficult. And actually I went into, I think what looking back was a kind of depression. I wouldn't glorify it with that title, but it was for me the first time I'd ever burst into tears spontaneously and bits of my body were twitching uncontrollably and I just couldn't couldn't cope with it. And I was driving once from uh, Leamington Spa towards uh, a meeting I was doing in Birmingham uh, the sun was shining, it was the middle of winter, and uh, I was singing to myself, all the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love leading upwards, leading onwards to thy glorious rest above. I had to stop the car and just crack up and sob because it was a moment at which I realised that whatever the chaos, the muddy, confused chaos, and actually looking back, the little chaos my little life had gotten itself into at that time, I was surrounded by the love of Jesus and that somehow this was going to work out alright in the end. It did work out alright in the end, as this friend of mine in a pub in Leicester ten years later said, by that Kathy, she's an impressive woman. I needed that, waited ten years for it. The well might be deep, there is a ladder, it will take time to climb to the surface. This few days together isn't it. It's probably for many of us the beginning of a process, so perhaps the beginning of a process of putting together the kind of support systems that we need in place for when the difficulties come, as come they will. Some of us are in the middle of trauma, some of us have got it yet to come. But we've, we've learned so much together and maybe we can agree that together we will not actually allow this network to disperse when we disperse this lunchtime but that through phone, through email, through personal contact, through meeting together in different parts of the country, we can do good things for each other. We missed the kind of uh, ten tips for refreshing your spiritual life each evening. It was probably good to drop them because those conversations were so enriching, so I thought I'd chuck mine in. 
fast. No, I don't mean go without food, because frankly I think that's pretty pointless these days. What was the thing, the one thing in the ancient world that would clear the decks so that you had time and quiet to seek God? It was food preparation. Stop eating and all of a sudden the day is empty. What's our equivalent for that? Yeah. Media. As your hand reaches groggily for the radio first thing tomorrow morning, stop it. You, you can do without the Today program for a day. Your hand might start to shake about five to nine, but um, <laughs> leave everything off. Leave everything off in the car, in the journeys, and just spend a day in reflection. Um, Working through some of these things is something I found personally tremendously helpful. So Psalm 103 is a kind of ladder. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being. Praise this holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all, my, all his benefits. Each one a rung climbing up the wall of the tunnel. As a father, verse 13, has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. The great hymn that's based on this psalm, verse 3 says this, Father like he tends and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows, in his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes, praise him widely as his mercy flows. If you want a title, there's the title, well our feeble frame he knows. He knows that we are dust and he remembers. He knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. So let's just, let me just give you a scripture reading, this time not from the Psalms but from elsewhere, from elsewhere in scripture. And the Lord said unto Noah, where is the ark which I commanded thee to build? And Noah said unto the Lord, Verily, I've had three carpenters off hill, the gopher wood supplier hath let me down, yea, even though the gopher wood hath been on order for nigh on twelve months. What can I do, O Lord? And God said unto Noah, I want that ark finished in seven days and seven nights. And Noah said, It will be so. And it was not so. <laughs> and the Lord said unto Noah, What seemeth to be the trouble this time? And Noah said unto the Lord, Mine subcontractor hath gone bankrupt. The pitch which thou commandest me to put on the inside and the outside of the ark hath not arrived. The plumber hath gone on strike, and, and Shem, my son who helpeth me on the ark side of the business, hath formed a boy band with his brothers. <laughs> Lord, I am undone. <laughs> and the Lord grew angry and said, what about the animals, the male and female of every sort I ordered to come to thee and keep their seed alive on the face of the earth? And Noah said, they have been delivered to the wrong address, which should arriveth on Friday. And the Lord said, how about the unicorns and the fowls of the air by seven? And Noah wrung his hands and wept, saying, Lord, unicorns are a discontinued line. Thou canst not get them for love nor money. The fowls of the air are sold only in half dozens. Lord, Thou knowest how it is. And the Lord in his wisdom said, Noah, my son, I knowest. Why else dost thou think I have caused a flood to come upon the earth? 
thou knowest how it is. Well, this is the first key thing. He knows how it is. He knows how we are formed. And maybe we don't quite understand how it is. Maybe we don't quite understand how we are formed. And as a result, we expect so much from ourselves. Of course we do. The needs of, of the world, in Marcus's phrase, the infinite demands placed on us. The needs of this world. And in some ways, the demands of Scripture to go into the world and preach the gospel to it, push us to our limits. Now, um, there's a, an interesting book called Emotional Intelligence by a, 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 psychi- well, a, a journalist actually called Daniel Goldman. And in one of his books on this particular theme called Working with Emotional Intelligence, he quotes some research. And the research quotes eight weaknesses, identifies eight weaknesses of people in leaders. Now, this is people in business leadership. These are the eight. Blind ambition, unrealistic goals, relentless striving, driving others, power hungry, an insatiable need for recognition, a preoccupation with appearances, a need to seem perfect. Add to that the last paragraph of Matthew 28 and you've got a problem. The infinite needs that we face and the fact that we are leaders and like leaders of, of GlaxoSmithKline or Boots the chemists, we suffer from the same drives as they. That blind ambition that drives more of us than we care to admit. A kind of visually impaired spiritual ambition. We can't quite see what it's doing to us. Unrealistic goals, what some business leaders call BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. We want to see the church, we want to see our movement grow. Relentless striving. I think that's probably the origin of Sabbath breaking, which is certainly crushing some of us. That creation need, built into every one of us. To take one day in seven, not one in ten or one in fourteen, but a day in seven, and to rest. And to be ministered to, and to do the things that recreate us and enable us to face the rest of the week, the rest of the month. Driving other people because we're hungry for power. How in the world... I think it was Peter last night was saying, are they going to run the world without me? This enormous, overblown image we've got for ourselves, an insatiable need for recognition, a preoccupation with, us, with appearances. Would I be being too cynical if I suggested to you that we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we were not to some degree vain, if we were not to some degree people who enjoy standing up in front of other people and telling them what they should think. And so the need to keep that facade in place is deeper perhaps than many of us will realise. The need to seem perfect is greater in our profession than in any other. Because if I'm going to lead my congregation into holiness, righteousness, then I've got to be better than the lot of them. What is that poisonous little dictum people keep quoting to me? The leader can't raise an organisation higher than its own level. 
I hope I can raise my organization higher than my own level. Yeah, it's a sobering list. And pastors are probably, Christian leaders are probably prone to most of these. They need to see perfect, the desperation for recognition perhaps more than any. And Psalm 103 is deeply therapeutic in this respect. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God knows this. God understands our design limits, our design capabilities. And we seem so often to want to work outside our design limits. If we were a jet engine subject to a public inquiry, the coroner would have some rude things to say about us. He knows how we are formed. And perhaps God is expecting way less of us than we expect of ourselves. Our congregations need to know how we are formed and to remember that we are dust. This is Warren Wearsby. Ministers are human beings made of dust, subject to the same forces that destroy the men and women who sit in the pews. For some reason, many church members have the idea that their pastor is exempt from personal pressures and problems, or that he has a secret system for overcoming the difficulties of life and ministry. He does not. You know that, I know that, God knows that, they need to know that too. That humble acknowledgement of real humanity, vulnerability, breakability is essential within the context of our own congregations. We cannot get away with presenting a facade to them that says, I am perfect, you come to me with problems, not the other way around, okay? He knows how we are formed. Perhaps thirdly, we need to recognize that too. At some point, every single one of us needs to come face to face with just what it is God wants us to do. And then be satisfied with that task. However much pressure is put upon us to shift our priorities, to stay with the task that we know God has given us. And maybe that's particularly helpful when the church down the road becomes particularly large and grand and glossy and intimidating and they've got everything, the talent, the music and the money. But if I know I'm doing what God wants me to do, it shouldn't scare me. And incidentally, every glossy church down the road has its malcontents who don't like the glossiness and the appearance of perfection. They just want an ordinary bunch of people like us to mix with. There's never a point at which your ministry will cave in. John the Baptist, I think, had this problem. He built up a nationwide ministry with hundreds of disciples, influence that went all the way to the top, and then the competition moved in on him. And then he began to hemorrhage disciples. And like all small and shrinking religious groups, they started to squabble of the pointless issues. And it was during one of those arguments, this disconsolate little group of disciples came to John. And they loved John more than anything. And they said to him, Rabbi, you know that guy we met by the Jordan? Well, he's baptizing people now and everyone's going to him. What, what should we do? John's answer is profoundly pastorally useful. A man can only do what is given him from heaven. He must increase, and I must decrease. For many years, I don't now, but for many years, I had that little verse 
written on the, the bookmark in my diary. I can't say it did me any good, but at least the, the desire was there. At least I had the, like most preachers, I had the principles in my head, if not in my actual practice. A man can only do. What has given you from heaven? Do you know? Do you have that confidence? Have you been pulled aside to something else? Has the simplicity of the job that we're meant to do been buried by a, a mountain of rubble that we just can't clear, a bit like Nehemiah before the walls of Jerusalem? Maybe those questions are good questions to, to ask when we meet with our friends, when we talk with our wives, when we just drive home from this conference. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Our congregations, our organisations need to know how we are formed. They need to remember that we are dust. More challenging of, of all, I need to know how I am formed and to remember that I am dust. Now the background to these verses brings us to the second big thing that I'd like us to think about and that is what for Jewish people and for many ancient cultures, and cultures today is the most appalling thought of all. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, verse 15, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, the wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. We are quite literally dust. You know, God took the dust of the ground and breathed life into it and the first human beings came into being. The word here for dust just means the loose, dry earth you find in Palestine. Latin for earth is humus. That's where you get the word human from. The word human has embedded in it the fact that we are just, ultimately, soil and the spirit of life. You are of the earth, and you are of heaven. You are of the earth, you belong to the world that God has made, we fit into the world like a glove. Spend some time with Psalm 104. It's a wonderful hymn to God about creation. Probably lifted some passages of it from Akhenaten's hymn of the sun, an Egyptian creation hymn. But the theology is better in Psalm 104. And there in Psalm 104 you have the lions going out, roaring to get their prey. The sun rises and they steal away to their dens till evening. Then man goes out to his work, to his labour, till evening. And then you have the human race just fitting into the, the cycle of day and night. You have this gorgeous picture of the Leviathan frolicking at sea. <coughs> And the ship's going to and fro. People are there as well, doing the business of expanding into the earth and subduing it. We fit into the world like a glove, but we're of heaven too. God breathed his spirit into us. But one day, we will die. And when we die, what then? Here's those sentences again as for man his days are like grass he flourishes like a flower of the field the wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it 
No more. The fear of death, being forgotten, was the most desperate fear at the back of a Hebrew mind. That's why the Old Testament is chock-a-block full of genealogies. So I wouldn't be forgotten. That's why it was important to make sure that your dead brother's name wasn't forgotten. I used to play as a kid in a large piece of rough ground near my home on the banks of the River Weir in Sunderland, completely overgrown what to me was, was chest-high vegetation. And occasionally playing hide-and-seek, you'd be in a little den and you'd scrape the grass aside and you'd realise that you were actually sitting on a tombstone. This would happen again and again and again. Galley's Gill in Sunderland was one of old Sunderland's main graveyards. And I can remember as a kid of maybe nine, ten, sitting, reading the inscriptions on these gravestones of people long dead and trying for all I was worth to imagine their lives and to reconstruct just a, just a wisp of something about them in my head. But I couldn't. There were no clues as to who these people were, no clues as to what they achieved or who they loved or how they suffered. Quite literally, their place remembered them no more. I was of Sunderland too. And despite the connection, I have no understanding of them. This haunts us, you know, like a spectre. It's not just horrifying to primitive cultures. This is Tony Hancock. From one of his last performances in Hancock's Half Hour back in 1964. What have you achieved? What have you achieved? You lost your chance, me old son. You contributed absolutely nothing to this life. A waste of time being here at all. No place for you in Westminster Abbey. The best you can expect is a bunch of daffodils in an old jam jar and a rough hewn stone bearing the inscription, He came and he went. And in between, nothing. No one will even notice you're not here. After about a year, someone might say down the pub, Oh, where's old Hancock then? I haven't seen him around lately. Oh, he's dead, you know. Is he? A right old reason death for that'll be. No one else will even know I've existed. Nothing to leave behind. Nothing to pass on. That's the bitterest blow of all. As for man, his days are like grass. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children. There's an incredible whiff here of the truth that's expanded to infinity in the New Testament. That through this gracious God, we who are only dust become stakeholders in infinity because he wants us to last forever. We are as fragile as flowers, we are as lightweight as dust, but we are not destined to be forgotten. We are destined for eternity. God can't be blown away. He's infinite. From everlasting to everlasting, his love is with those who fear him. And you need to just have a little look back at Psalm 90 to get a, a commentary on that little phrase. Just to get a deeper feeling for what it's about and what it's saying to us. This is Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. It's verses 1 and 2. 
and 3. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, you sons of men. Psalm 90 is, uh, first of all, saying that before the creation of the world, and presumably long after its destruction, God just is. He is the one given in the universe who will never change, who will always stay the same, from everlasting to everlasting before the mountains were born and after they will be destroyed. God just is. God inhabits this universe. It's his birthright. Infinity is his own. And secondly, look at Israel, this community of people. You have been our dwelling place through all generations. We came along in a scintilla of time, in the middle of the history of eternity, and we dwelt in you. You are, you were, you will be our home. We live in you. You are the place we feel safe. You are the place we find comfort. Dare I say it? You are the place where we have most fun, because this is where we belong, and this is where we're secure. What happens when that generation dies out? Moses is sure, you turn back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. Moses was sure, but David wasn't so sure. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant. Moses to and from were about God. David's to and from are about those who keep his covenant, about God's covenant people. His love for them beginning in eternity past and continuing to eternity future. And it's only a short step, isn't it, from here to some of the most breathtaking words in the New Testament. Try these for size. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Having believed you are marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory from everlasting to everlasting God's love is with those who fear him it's not difficult to see where Paul got his theology from when you read these two psalms from everlasting to everlasting the Lord's love is with those who fear him with those who keep his covenant and the glory of this is that David's covenant is obsolete we have a covenant that's even more glorious. We have a covenant that gives life when it brought death. We have a covenant that leads to righteousness where the old one left condemnation. David suspected that God would resurrect his people. And I guess that suspicion was there all along. From Moses onwards, from David onwards. What happens after death? This gloomy place called Sheol cannot be all that there is. And I guess people suspected that. I guess the bunch of women that ran into Jerusalem early one morning 
had felt that way as they ran through the streets looking for their friends, found the friends, the home where their friends were staying, rang on the corridor, banged on the door, which opened to reveal two frightened and tired faces. And one of the women said, he's not there. He's alive. We've seen him. And from that moment on, no one suspected anymore. Because they knew that this God does redeem your life from the pit. And the object of love, his covenant people, will be his objects of love for eternity. Because through this everlasting covenant, the children of dust become the stakeholders in infinity. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. God's covenant love. That's worth a thought or two. That's the next thing we're thinking about. Because this is such an insipid English word that we just need to remind ourselves again and again that it's such a full-blooded biblical one. That first complete printed English Bible that Miles Coverdale produced, he used the word loving kindness in each instance of this psalm where the word love is, and you'll find that's true today in the New American Standard Bible as well. What is this love? Well, I don't know about you, and maybe I shouldn't say this sort of thing in company like this, but I find technical words, stuff about words pretty tedious. And I find that moments like this, poetry helps better than the uh, essays that theologians write about this. Although we do need the essays that theologians write about this. I'm now covering my back, as you notice, <laughs> and I value their work very, very much. <laughs> oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in, I, in thine ocean depths its flow may richer for thee. That's what this love is. Love that will not let me go. Love that will not let me go. You can leave here and never pray again. And he will not let you go. You can leave here and never read your Bible again. And he will not let you go. You can go from here and never go back to that church again. And he will not let you go. He probably wouldn't go either. He will not let you go. We tell people that we tell people this. We say, you don't have to do anything. Just believe. We've got to do so much to earn God's love and God's goodwill and God's blessing. And this love, this chesed, this covenant associated love that's talked about again and again in the Bible is just about trusting Him. And that is all. What do you need to do to keep this covenant? The Lord's love is with those who keep the covenant David's answer to that question is very different from our answer what do you need to do to keep the covenant you're sitting in church on a Sunday evening the guys that said the words the, um, the blokes in the smart suits are, are coming round with the plate with bits of bread on it you take that piece of bread you pass the plate on the guy comes round again with a cup of wine you, you take a sip of of wine. You pass the cup on. 
what do you need to do to keep this covenant? Christ has died. The blood price is paid. He's my substitute for all my inadequacies and failures, my sin. What do I do? I just trust him. That's all I bring to this. Actually, depending on how your theology goes, and we won't get into that, maybe that just comes from him as well. And the only thing I bring to the equation is the sin that got me this trouble in the first place. But at that moment, all I do is trust. What do I trust? Trust that he loves you. You have the proof of that in your hands, the bread and the wine, the the elements that remind us of his incarnation and his death, his body and his, and his blood. But here's something else to trust too. Just to expand the picture, just, just to keep me out of myself and remind me, as I need reminding, this is not about me. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. And that this God that I maybe can't see right now is in control of everything. And for reasons I can't quite understand right now, and I can't see the way out of right now, I just happen to be in some difficulties. So I was at university, uh, myself and a couple of friends, we used to earn a little bit of extra money by doing some commercial diving. And uh, our link guy for that was an amazing Welshman called Alan Osborne, who is not very well, not well known at all, but he really was the British Jacques Cousteau. And uh, he was one of, our, one of our teachers, one of our lecturers, an amazing guy. And he took us once on a job, which was to Milford Haven, where a, a large oil tank had been flushed out with salt water, and some inspection work had gone wrong, and the, the guys doing the inspection work with a robot camera, the camera just failed and floated to the silt at the bottom of this tank. And they needed to get it back because it was expensive. Myself and Alan and a friend, we went into this tank, completely dark, with just torches. And uh, the water's bell clear, you can see the silt, you can see the walls, until we got in there. And our flippers and our bubbles just stirred up the silt, and before very long you couldn't see anything. Visibility zero. We'd have died if Alan wasn't there. Because Alan, being very experienced, had tied a bit of string to the outside and he had a reel with a bit of orange string on it. Theseus and the Minotaur. We never thought of that, but he had. When we eventually got this piece of junk and set out to find our way out, we just followed the string. We just followed the orange cord and we were out. It wasn't dangerous, it was pretty straightforward and, uh, and we earned a bit of money because we were skinned. What do you do when the water is muddy, visibility is nil? What do you do when your mind is as muddy as mine is most of the time, and you really can't think your way or see your way out of this? You trust. You trust that he loves you. That's what you're holding in your hands, the bread and the wine. You trust. You trust that he's bigger than you, that he's bigger than the universe. The Lord has established his throne over all. His kingdom does rule over all. And one day he'll be revealed for who he really is. So you eat that bread. 
touch and go this week. I'm still here, Lord. Might be touch and go this week too. Keep me till the next time. And you drink that wine. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He will not let you go. And this hesed, this love that we could get so technical about, let's just suffice with this. This is the love that drives God to extremes. The extreme of Bethlehem as the Son of God enters the world down the birth canal of a human woman. To extremes like Gethsemane as the Son of God cries in anguish for his own life while his friends sleep. To extremes like Calvary as the Son of God dies for me. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Almost done. Here's the last bit. Praise is therapeutic. Praise is therapeutic. And I think that the specialists who see that first burst of praise, the Lord all my soul and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. The reason they see that as a, a quiet voice of praise, imagining David to be at the bottom of a well, needing to climb out, is because of the burst of exalted praise at the end of the psalm. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. He's out of the well. He's climbed to the top. The teaching has worked and he bursts into extremes of praise where unimaginable beings are caught up in the act of worshipping him. I think this is quite funny because this is how my mind works. When I learn something new and I've escaped some snare, I can't resist telling everybody about it. And here's David, who not six weeks, six months before, the bottom of a pit, is now lecturing the universe about it all. <laughs> That's a picture for you. And here are these armies of angels, these beings, these spirits that we can only barely begin to try and reconstruct and imagine in our imaginations. And frankly, it just doesn't work. And there is David, this little human being. Offering his significant sixpenneth to the glory of the whole created order to this majestic God. And actually, when you think about it, he's standing, worshipping the king, in the company of a messenger like Gabriel, who took the news of the Annunciation to Mary. All those years ago. Piece of cake. I mean, you're an angel, right? Mary, right. I don't know how it happened. I'm just making it up. <laughs> An angelic being. Piece of cake. Compared with the challenge of taking this gospel 
to the sceptical, cynical, battered, bruised citizens of 20th century Britain, that's a piece of cake. And when you eventually get to glory, and you're faced with the beatific vision, which is more wonderful than anything else, if you have a moment to glance sideways at the likes of Gabriel, you will not be wondering at them. They will be wondering at you. Let's pray together, shall we? Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And all my inmost being, my viscera, the very core of me, we worship you, the living God. And we remember the love that will not let us go. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.